preparing for Christmas, putting up lights, decorating a tree, baking cookies. It was never really my thing. But after the Corona coaster that we have been on all year long, plus everything else that 2020 threw our way, I was just, I was just looking for a little good old fashioned holiday cheer and fast. You know, it's strange. For all this talk of cheer and tis the season to be jolly, It's like the holidays are the time that bring out the ugliness in all of us. And I'm not just talking about Uncle Marvin's sweater. I mean, that thing is nasty, but no, I'm talking about the way we speak and the way we talk and the way we treat one another. That's ugly. I mean, it is pretty ridiculous the amount of time that I spend adjusting my camera to feel what? 5% more confident on Zoom? or throwing up a virtual background so that nobody can see the disaster area that is my living room behind me. But still, the way that I think about myself and my home and my family are not spreading any joy to the world. And my words, wow. I mean, if someone found a way to track everything that I have said while I was on mute or log all of the comments that I have made about every sanitizer stockpiling, toilet paper hoarding, mask below your nose, snorkeling person I come in contact with. Sorry. See? We have an ugliness problem on our hands. But for a weary world, there is rejoicing because yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I'm looking at you, 2021. But seriously, For all the messiness that is our motives and the ugliness that is our words and actions, the good news that Jesus entered into all of that muck and made it beautiful is pretty amazing. So, friend, you are in good company. Put your boots on, bundle up, and let's go get into our ugly. Well, welcome, everybody. This is the last message in our series, Ugly Christmas Sweaters. Now, I know if you've been with me over the last couple of weekends, you're all wondering, where is that famous sports coat that you've been wearing, the one we love so much? Well, when I put it on with this red shirt, it almost made me blind. So I'm not wearing it. I hope you have your ugly sweater on. I do have my ugly tie on. So this has been a fun series, but it's also been really serious. And um, I hope you've been able to enjoy both the serious side of, you know, changing our thoughts, going from ugly thoughts to thoughts that are uplifting and glorifying to God and are positive and encouraging. I hope you've been thinking differently. That's a great gift to give God, yourself, and the people who are around you. Last weekend, we talked about those ugly words that come pouring out of our mouth sometimes and how we can change those so that our words are uplifting and our words are healing and edifying and encouraging. I hope you've been working on that. If you slipped a few times or a lot of times, don't give up. Keep it going. It's a great gift to give this Christmas season. Now, what I want to do this weekend, wherever you are at one of our campuses, in your living room, or wherever you have to be perched, maybe in your kitchen or at your study someplace, I want to ask you a question. It's going to seem a little bit odd to ask this. Don't be offended by it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is it possible? Is it possible that you might have something in common this Christmas season with Charles Dickens' character Scrooge or Dr. Seuss's character The Grinch? See, that's an odd way to start the message. I'm no Scrooge. I'm no Grinch. 
Well, in case you kind of forgot what Scrooge was like and Grinch was like, I thought I'd uh, uh, show you a picture. And I just want to read some excerpts, first of all, uh, from Dickens about Scrooge. Here we go. Ready? Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in grating voice. Whoa. All right, that's Scrooge. Now, Dr. Seuss tells us about Grinch. Listen to this. Now, every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But whatever else the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas hating the Who's. Ah, you may be thinking to yourself, I'm no Scrooge, I'm no Grinch. I love Christmas. In fact, I wish Christmas was every day of the year. I love to give. I love to share. I love to serve. I love to laugh. I just love the joy of Christmas. I am no Scrooge. I am no Grinch. I didn't say you were. Just ask the question. I am sure you are kind and that you serve and that you give and that you share at this time of the year. Perhaps beyond that as well. But what you may not realize is that you can do big-hearted things and still have a very small heart, two sizes too small. So what do you mean by that? Well, a lot of times we do things that on the outside make us look good, but honestly inside, the motive behind what we're doing is ugly. It's not so good. So we're going to talk about ugly motives and kind of take a look on the inside and ask ourselves, hey, am I doing things with kind of an ugly motive or do I have the right motives? Which begs the question, what in the world is a motive? So if you go to dictionary.com, the definition of a motive is a reason for doing something, especially one that is hidden or not obvious. If you go to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, they say a motive is something such as a need or desire that causes persons to act. My simple way of defining a motive is it's the why behind the things that we say and the things that we do. Now, God knows our hearts. He examines our hearts. He sees every motive. When Jesus was here on earth, he knew the motives of everybody that was around him, especially the Pharisees, those who were his enemies. In an interesting passage of Scripture, Jesus exposes what seemed to be big-hearted actions as being driven by very ugly motives. Matthew chapter 6. I hope you read the whole chapter later on. We're going to look at a few verses. Here's how it goes. Watch out. Now, I want you to remember this word, watch out. We're going to come back to it a little later on. Don't do your good deeds publicly, all right? I want you to 
keep track of this phrase publicly to be admired. We'll come back to that as well. By others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as, we'll come back to this word too, the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything, this is really important, will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners in the synagogues where everyone could see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. Now, I circled and underlined those things because we're going to come back to them again, all right? And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. And those are the words of Jesus. So what the Pharisees were doing is they were practicing three disciplines of many, three good disciplines of many good disciplines. That was almsgiving, which would be like what we do at Whitdale Church. We take our compassion offering, or you may do privately when you help people who are in need. That might be by giving them money or providing them an opportunity to better their lives. They were also praying, obviously praying to God, giving our attention, our focus on God, worshiping Him. And the third practice was fasting, which is kind of a way of disciplining ourselves, our bodies, so we can focus more on who God is. And those are three beautiful things. And I guess the equivalent of that today would still be praying, would be fasting, those who do practice fasting. It could be going to church. It could be singing and worshiping God. It certainly is serving. It certainly is giving and generosity. Those would be kind of the things that we would do today that we would call our disciplines as sincere followers of Christ. That would be similar to what the Pharisees were doing as well. However, Jesus had a problem with them. Their motives were wrong. Behind the good things they did were wrong motives. See, they did those things to garner praise and attention to themselves. For instance, and William Barclay brings this up in his writings, some of the Pharisees, others would do things differently, but some of the Pharisees, when they would be walking along, so as to show a sense of piety and, quote, humility, they would throw the money they were going to give to the poor behind them so that they wouldn't see who was getting the money, as though, as though somehow that made them even more spiritual. Look, they don't, they don't even want to know who gets the money. They don't want the attention of it. When in reality, everybody's watching them and everybody's talking about, oh, look at this holy man. Look how generous he is. Look how he just throws the money and doesn't care who the poor are to come and get it. And they loved it. They basked in it. It was like being in the sunshine, in the spotlight. It would be like somebody coming into a worship service and saying, uh, by the way, uh, I'd like to give $10,000. Uh, do, you, do you guys accept uh, $100 bills? Can I give it all $100 bills? And everybody hears that, right? It would be like you're drawing all this attention to yourself. Or take, for instance, the whole concept of prayer. When the Pharisees would pray, and this isn't true of every last one of them, but many of them, 
They were praying to God, but they were praying to God about themselves. They were announcing to God and to everyone who could hear them how great they were. In fact, Jesus talked about a Pharisee, remember that story, who stands there and he's standing next to a tax collector and this tax collector is praying and beating his chest and saying, oh, I'm such a sinner. And remember that the, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you, I'm not like that guy. I thank you for my righteousness. You know, I keep the law and I keep the rituals and I'm faithful to you and I do all these things. He wasn't praying to God. He was just announcing to everybody else how great he was. And fasting. You know, Jesus says when you fast, people shouldn't be able to tell that you're fasting. But these guys would walk around with kind of sunken cheeks and disheveled hair and just, you know, their stomachs groaning and kind of telling everybody about what day of the fast it was on just so everybody would look at them and go, wow, I wish I was as spiritual as you were, as you are. That's what these guys were doing. They were doing all those things to garner attention to themselves. So their hearts really are two sizes too small, though what they do looks really big. Which raises lots of questions in my mind and maybe in your mind as well. And that is, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we go to church? Why do we worship? Why do we pray? Why do we sing? Why do we serve? Why do we give? Even beyond church world, why are you giving gifts this Christmas, right? Why do you and I give compliments to people? Why do we help people? Why do we serve people? Why do we work so hard? Why are we the first one to show up and the last one to leave? Why do we talk about our hardships? Why do we talk about our suffering and how, how difficult life has been for us? Why do we do those things? I don't know about you, but when I ask myself questions like that, Oftentimes, my mind starts to get very accusatory toward me. I start thinking about maybe all the wrong reasons I'm doing something like this. It can, it can be stifling. I mean, if you really start asking that question, it can almost freeze you and, and cause you to say, you know what, I, I might be doing this for the wrong reason. I'm just not going to do anything at all. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, if you wait until your motives are pure and unselfish before you do something, you will wait forever. Which sounds defeating, doesn't it? It's like, well, then why do anything at all? The point is we need help in order for our motives to be pure and pleasing to God. And I hope to show you something this weekend that I've discovered that's actually going to be an encouragement to you to really upgrade your motives in a way that, that's going to bless your life. You're going to get what you're looking for, but in a way you never thought about before, all right? So how, how, do we, how do we make this happen in our lives? So I want to start out with a very simple principle, and it goes like this. Monitor your motives. Monitor your motives. Just like you would monitor your heartbeat by taking your pulse or wearing one of those heart monitors so that you can, you know, look at your watch or, you know, watch the screen or whatever it is and know this is what my pulse is. We also have to monitor our motives. Remember what Jesus said? He said, watch out. Remember I said, remember that? Watch out. In the Greek that's used there, it's a word that means to do something constantly and continuously. It's like I can't take my eye off my motives. They're like two-year-olds. You don't take your eye off a two-year-old, right? So you can't take your eyes off your motives. 
Look what, look what Jeremiah the prophet said about our hearts, you know, that which represents our motives. He said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret what? Secret motives. I give all people their due rewards. Interesting. Keep that in mind. According to what their actions deserve and our actions are driven by our motives. So we get what we deserve based on our Motives And the Pharisees were getting what they deserved based on their motives. Again, we'll come back to that in just a little while. All right? So the, the point is, I got to keep an eye on these things. So for instance, what do I want to keep an eye on? What might be driving my motives? Tim Keller suggests some things that I, I saw in an article I want to share with you. He said, one of the things that can drive our motives is nostalgia. You know, especially this time of the year, Christmas season, right? Wherever you're watching us in the world, we're all celebrating. Many of us are celebrating Christmas. You know, sometimes we go through the motions of doing the right things because, well, that's just how our family always did it. Hey, we always go to the Christmas Eve service. Or we always give an extra gift. Or we always ring the bell, right? Or we always sing carols. Or we always have people over. Or we always go serve someplace. It's nostalgia. That's why, that's why I do it. I'm not doing it for God necessarily. I'm just doing it because we've always done that. All right? A second way is pride. Ugh, pride. You know, I do this because, because I, I, I got to impress the people at work, all right? That's why, that's why I collect money, or that's why I go and, and I serve in this way. That's why I'm involved in these things. I mean, I mean everybody else says, you got to climb the ladder on here. You got to do those things, all right? Or, or I, I'm motivated to be better than the next person. So, so I've got to perform better than them. So I look better. So I look good. So a lot of times pride will drive why we do the things that we do and why we say the things that we say. Remember last weekend I said a lot of times our hearts and minds are disconnected when we talk. We just say things to say it. We don't mean it. That's because our motives, right? We're saying it because it's the right thing to say. We want to look good. Thirdly, duty, all right? A lot of us do stuff out of duty. Whether we're talking about stuff, you know, through the ministry of the church or in our work life, or in our private life, you know, we just, it's just like, I just have to do this, because if I don't do it, I'm going to feel guilty about it, and I don't want to feel guilty about it, and if I don't do it, what will my spouse think of me? What will my parents think of me? What will my neighbors think of me? What will other people in church think of me? So I do it. Almost with a sense of drudgery, right? It's my duty, all right? And the last one, which I think is a primary motivator for a lot of us, we are seeking approval. We say the things we say. We do the things we do. Whether it is serving in the church or whether it's giving a gift to someone at Christmas, whether it's singing out loud and worshiping or whether it is giving out compliments or whether it's working late or showing up first, we're seeking approval. We want somebody to say, at a girl, or at a boy, or you're doing a great job, or wow, that's a sign of being a real Christian, 
or that's, boy, I can see your faith. We, we want somebody to prove us. We want to be validated. We want to have our sense of worth given to us based on our performance as a result of these kinds of, of things. Dr. Uh, Paul Chapel, who's a pastor and president at West Coast Baptist College, writes this. It goes hand in hand with what I've just saying. He says, you couldn't be more loved by God than you are right now. I want you to stop and think about that. Wherever you are right now, you could not be more loved by God than you are right now. Isn't that good to hear? That means you don't have to perform in order to be loved by God. God just chooses to love you and love me. He says, we all love affirmation. We all desire significance and recognition, which then drives so much of our motives. We all benefit from, benefit from being encouraged by others. And yet this silent struggle for approval can often become an overriding motivation that keeps us on an unpredictable roller coaster of insecurity and instability. Remember earlier when we were reading there in Matthew, I said, now pay attention to Jesus' words here about looking good in public. The actual Greek word that's used there is the word from which we get our theater. And the word that Jesus used there for hypocrites is the word that is used for an actor or an actress. So an actor or an actress appears on stage and they perform. Now, why do actors and actresses perform? Why do singers perform? Generally speaking, they do it for attention and applause of the audience. They want to hear through the applause, through the cheers, that they've done a great job. If an actor or an actress performs, a singer, a musician performs on stage, and they never get an applause, nobody ever cheers, nobody ever throws roses, right? Everybody just sits there silently or even boos or criticizes them. I guarantee you, eventually, that performer is not going to show up on stage anymore. Why? Because their motivation, they're striking a bargain. I'll give you this, but I need this back from you. All of us to some degree, all of us to some degree, step out on a stage every day. And we perform whether it's at work or at home or at church, and we want to receive some type of approval. And so it's easy for the things we say and do to become motivated for that exchange. And there's just something, it's in our nature to want that. Now listen carefully. It's in our nature to want that because God put it there in us. Yes, that's what I said. God put it in your nature to want approval. He put it in your nature and my nature to want a reward for our performance. And you're going to see why that's so important in just a couple of minutes. So, second principle I want you to write down. Number two, we already have from God what we seek from others. I want that approval. I want that worth. I want that value. I want that applause. Well, you, already, you and I already have it from God. Isn't it far better to get that from God than from others? which really then tests the legitimacy of our faith and belief in God, doesn't it? I mean, do I so believe in God that that matters to me? 
or I just talk about believing in God, but honestly, my seeking it from others proves that I'm somewhat of an atheist. I know I, I, I struggle with that. You know, oftentimes pastors are people pleasers. I know, what, I know what that's all about. And it's easy when you're a people pleaser to want that from others. But we can't always please people. But we can always please God. Because God is already pleased with us in Christ, who Christ is and what he's done for us. Look at the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Jesus to be our wisdom. Christ made us right with God. He's our righteousness. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. So when God looks at me and he looks at you, we can never talk about this enough because we fall away from it so often. He sees us through the lens of his son. He sees us as wisdom. He sees us as pure. He sees us as holy. Because our sin has been credited to Christ who died for our sins. And his holiness and all that he has has been credited to us. It's as though I become Christ. Because Christ lives in me through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? That's your standing before God. And it has nothing to do with you. It's what God has done for you. Another passage of scripture puts it this way. Romans 5. Therefore, based on everything Christ has done for us, since we have been made right in God's sight by what? By faith, by believing, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for you and for me. Because of our faith, so see how it's connected? Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing, this is so important, Sunday, we're going to share, listen to this, we talk about God's glory, we're going to share God's glory. I mean, that, I don't know where you are watching this right now, but that should cause you to just want to stand up and give an applause, applause to God. Because what he's done for you and for me. Man, it just frees me up from having to please people because God is already pleased with you and pleased with me, which takes us to the next thought, and that is this. Ready for this? Seek your glory by giving God the glory. Remember I said God's put it in us to want glory, to want reward, to want applause? Well, we get that when we seek God's glory. Someone once asked the question, what is the greatest virtue? And in his sermon on the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis answers it by saying that the greatest virtue of all is love. But he said most people will say the greatest virtue is unselfishness, self-denial. Lewis goes on, he says, you know, the problem with, self, with uh, unselfishness and self-denial is that is that it's not natural for us to deny ourselves. We, we want some recognition. We, we want some kind of reward. And he says the secret to being satisfied is to focus on our love for God. 
as we love God and move closer to God, what happens is God begins to reward us with himself. That's why Jesus talks so much, the Bible talks so much about self-denial. Yes, self-denial is important. But listen carefully, it is important for our benefit. Self-denial is not about going without. Self-denial is not about punishing myself. Self-denial is not about looking kind of, you know, gaunt and discouraged like so many Christians that, you know, think about themselves. Self-denial is about, is about getting focused on the right place for, for my glory, for my reward, for my blessing. God wants to reward us. God wants to bless you. And when you and I get focused on him, and a merger takes place of his presence into our lives. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves rewarded with the very presence of God himself. Let me give you an illustration. My little, my kids, uh, Ben, my, my son, and my daughter, Bethany, uh, took piano when they were really young. And we started them out early. And I, I'll be honest with you, they didn't want to take piano lessons, but we kind of forced it on them. And so they would practice, and that was not always the easiest thing to listen to, right? But they would practice, and they would practice, and we would have to offer all kinds of, of rewards for that, right? And the teacher would get them stars, and so they kind of would work for the next reward and work for the next reward. Well, just recently I was visiting my daughter in Texas, and she has a grand piano, and she sat down and played me a mini concert. And as I just listened to her play, I saw such joy on her face. You see, all of a sudden, the stars didn't matter anymore. The treats, the rewards didn't matter anymore. The ability to play those pieces and enjoy the music that she was playing became her reward. But sometimes, you know, you've got to take it a piece at a time before all of a sudden, you know, you're doing it and you're experiencing the reward. Now, that is a really poor illustration that I'm using to describe what happens to us. You see, those of us who have loved ones who've gone on to be with the Lord, listen, right now, right now, their reward is being in the presence of God himself. It's like all the other stuff that they, they you know, they strove for in this world. All the ways they tried to please God somehow, none of that matters anymore. They lay their crowns down in front of God because now that they're fully in his presence, something you and I can't understand yet, they're experiencing the greatest reward of all time. Of all time. Let's break that out and, and kind of look at it in some, in some pieces together. Notice what Jesus said back in Matthew 6. He said, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, look, if you do it for the attention of human beings, then the attention human beings give you, the praise human beings give you, the glory human beings giving you, that's all you're ever going to get. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, be very careful some of you, he says, are going to make it into heaven. It's going to be like, by, you know, by the skin of your teeth, right? It's going to be like, you have nothing to show for. Because everything was for human, human reward. And there, listen, 
There are rewards waiting for you and me in heaven. The Bible is so clear about that. That's why Jesus says, deny yourself. I've got a whole bunch to give you. Look what Jesus says. He goes on in Matthew. And he says, give your gifts in private. Your Father who sees everything will what? He's going to reward you. Keep reading in the Gospels and you will come across this concept of reward over and over and over again. And we've got to be willing to wait for the ultimate reward, which is his presence. So let's, let's break it down a little further and look at that reward. Number one, one of the rewards we're going to receive is the glory of being recognized. The glory of being recognized. You know, it's so fun when you see a child, right? And you recognize a child when they're really little. And you, you're so excited to see them. Uh, whenever my wife sees our grandkids... She gets so excited. And it's not an act. She just gets so excited. And I love, especially when they're younger, I just love how they, how their eyes light up. They just come to life because they're being recognized by somebody that loves them unconditionally. God recognizes you. He recognizes you now. And when you step into glory someday, he's going to be like all over you with praise, all over you with love all over you with recognition. Isn't that worth waiting for? Isn't that exciting to anticipate? Look what the passage says here. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. See, that's that virtue. Love God. And the reward is experiencing that love of God for you. And what's weird is, it's the love of God that inspires us to love him. It's a beautiful dance, isn't it? Secondly, the glory of glorious transformation. That that, that sounds kind of odd, right? But the other reward is the glory of glorious transformation. We are going to be literally transformed. We're going to become literally, listen, luminous with the glory of God, just like Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration. He became luminous. He literally shined with the glory of God. And Moses and Elijah, it says that they shone as well because they were in the glory of God. Look what Paul writes. He says in Romans, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order, here it is, that we may also be what? Glorified with him. We share in the glory of Christ. Wow. I mean, I can say it, but what it's going to be someday, which then challenges our faith again. If I honestly believe in God, I believe in who Jesus is, then all of this is true. But I think we struggle a little bit with some viral atheism. We're not quite sure it's true. And so what happens is we go, we go seeking glory in all the wrong places, which takes me to one final thought I want to share with you. It's from Pastor Ryan Hawkins, who was kind of commenting on that message called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. You you should just, you can Google it and read the whole sermon. It's called Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. But listen to what Pastor Ryan Hawkins says. He says, and it is this divine accolade that we live for that we must live for. We're glory chasers by nature, 
We want to please and be pleased, praise and be praised, because God made us this way. We were designed to glorify him and to be glorified in our glorification of him. So if we don't chase this glory, we glory chasers will seek it elsewhere, most prominently from other people, which is an aberration of our design, something surely condemned in the Bible. And then I just want to share these words with you from C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he says. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Are you? Am I? Are we far too easily pleased by the applause of human beings? by the glory that humans want to shower on us? Is that what we're chasing after when the God of the universe, our creator, wants to recognize us, wants to reward us in tangible ways someday, and most importantly, wants to share like a canopy. He wants to share his own personal glory with us which we'll fully realize someday when we stand in his presence. What motivates you? I hope and pray you'll monitor your motives. You'll mind your motives and discipline yourself that whatever you do, whatever you say, as the Bible says, you will do it from now on for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us with our thoughts to glorify you. Help us with our words to glorify you. And now, Lord, help us with our actions to glorify you. May our big heartedness come from a big heart for you. And though none may ever applaud us, O oh God, and though none may ever recognize us, that's okay. Our Creator does and will. And we look forward to that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, and I hope to see you on Christmas Eve, whether it's online or at one of our campuses. God bless.